0: Ain't going to burn ourselves out no more. Ain't going to burn ourselves out no more. Got each other on our side, plus all the folks at Fried the burnout podcast with Kate Donovan. You're listening to Season 6 of Fried the burnout podcast with your host, Kate Donovan. Pride exists to hashtag end culture, to help listeners release any shame, blame, guilt, or judgment that you have about burning out, and to create spontaneous moments of healing through recognition of shared humanity with other people who have experienced burnout and lived to tell the tale. Pride and its associated Facebook group are free resources provided for you from our hearts. Our paid work includes keynote speaking and one-on-one coaching. You can find information about that at katedonovan.com. And now, here is this week's Healing packed episode. Hello, Fried Fam! Today I get to do something really, really special and something that has been on my list for a very long time. And I get to do it with someone who I absolutely adore. You might recognize her name today. We're chatting with Rebecca Case, who is a licensed clinical social worker and an EMDR consultant and trainer. She is the owner of Case & Co. Training and Consulting and the author of Polyvagal Informed EMDR, a neuro-informed approach to healing, which is coming out literally next week. Rebecca is an avid yogi and an internationally known trauma expert and she believes that the key to successful therapy and learning is embodied presence. She strives to create engaging, safe, shame-free spaces for learning where therapists can explore, stay curious and find play within learning. Rebecca, welcome back. It's not a thing I get to say a lot on this show is welcome back, but welcome back to Fried. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here again. <laughs> I'm so excited too. So everybody, we're going to do things a little different today. We're not going to go through Rebecca's burnout story because we've done that on the show before. The link to her first episode will be in the show notes. And today we're going to spend a lot of time talking about what polyvagal theory is, what Rebecca does, what it means to be neuro-informed and trauma-informed and all of these things. And polyvagal theory is something that I've wanted to talk about on the show for a very long time. And I've had a few people come through saying that they could do it and it just nothing felt right. And when Rebecca wrote to me and said, hey, I have a book coming out. I know that you said you wanted to talk about this. Do you want to have this conversation? I was like, can we record yesterday? I was so excited, so excited that you're here to do it uh, because I know your work. I know your work fairly intimately. I know how you show up in spaces. And so I'm honored to be one of the spaces that will be promoting your new book and giving you space to talk about it. So before we jump into the polyvagal part, what I'm gonna ask you to do is explain a a short explanation, because again, this is in the other episode, of what EMDR is. And then we'll jump into the polyvagal stuff and we'll spend the entire time talking about that and tools and techniques and all the things.
1: Elevator pitch for EMDR. Go. EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. It's a really long name, so we just call it EMDR. It is an evidence-based therapy for the treatment of PTSD and trauma, also shown to be really effective with a lot of other common human flavors of suffering like anxiety and depression, chronic pain, grief and loss. EMDR asserts that our memories. The way we store memories are a big contributor to when we're feeling a lot of yuck, experiences overwhelm our nervous system and they can get stuck in our nervous system, stuck in our memory networks. And when those memories get triggered or activated in the present, we feel all the yuck and the distress that's held within those memory networks. And so EMDR, again, it's an evidence-based therapy. It's highly researched. It uses uh, a technique called bilateral stimulation. Essentially, you think about the the memory that's causing you yuck and distress, and your therapist adds bilateral stimulation, and that memory kind of dissolves, it integrates, it metabolizes, to a point that you're just like, "I feel fine now." It's pretty amazing, magical stuff.
0: And so now everybody's like, "Oh, can I make an appointment with you?" Yesterday. Well, then, can you people understand why? Of All people that I could have the polyvagal conversation with, why I wanted it to be Rebecca. So now we're just going to jump into the meat. What is polyvagal theory? Let's start with that. Let's give people an overview of that. Got it.
1: Polyvagal theory. I imagine a lot of you listeners, because you are so self-aware have heard of polyvagal theory before and you dive into it and you might feel a little bamboozled because it's it's a it's a framework of neuroscience so it's it's a bit overwhelming and confusing even to those of us with counseling degrees. So let me see if I can simplify it. Polyvagal theory was developed by Stephen Porges, who is this amazing researcher who started studying heart rates in infants in the acute when he was in his graduate program trainings. He started back in like 1970 with his research. And so over decades of research on the heart and heart rate and how our heart rate changes, In response to stressors or when we feel safe, he develops this whole theoretical model that has a number of really important pieces to it that helps just to understand how our nervous system functions and what it means to feel safe, what our nervous system actually needs to feel safe, which when we feel safe, that's where we can feel calm and regulated and peaceful. It's kind of like our ideal zone, our window of tolerance, sometimes we call that. Or when our nervous system perceives danger, threats, whether that be a life threat or rush hour traffic or another crappy email from your boss dropping something on your plate at the end of the day at the 11th hour to get done, they're all threats as perceived by your nervous system. And so when your nervous system perceives a threat, it has these hardwired defenses to try and take care of you. We think of those as our stress responses. So really, those stress responses live in your autonomic nervous system. Your autonomic nervous system is one of the branches of your nervous system. I sometimes think of it as your automatic nervous system. It's automatic. It just responds. So while you get that email from your boss at the 11th hour and you know, okay, this isn't actually a sign my boss is trying to kill me, right? It's not truly life threatening your nervous system still perceives it as an incredible threat. And so you may have this flood, automatic flood of anxiety, or I'm just going to quit, or I can't get out of here fast enough. Or maybe you go into like, let me just hammer this out and get it done. You're just filled with this mobilizing energy. Or maybe your nervous system goes into another defensive state, which is that collapse state where we just kind of get really depressed. We withdraw. We shut down. Maybe all of a sudden we call out for work. We don't get that thing done in time. We engage in a lot of procrastination. So polyvagal theory helps us to understand how that automatic nervous system functions and why it does what it does because it does so without your conscious awareness. It, It just responds because response time is survival time. It's really important that we don't think about things that are threats necessarily, because by the time you think through it, you might not be here anymore. So polybagel theory gives us this framework for understanding why our automatic nervous system does what it does. And the better we can understand that, the more we can actually make friends with our nervous system and see our nervous system isn't really out to get us. And I think this is really important when we talk about burnout culture, because the symptoms of burnout are all held within
0: your autonomic nervous system. So there's a. I was just reading a post this morning, actually, I'll say it this way that said, you know, not every distressing event in your childhood is a trauma, and not everybody has PTSD. And we have to be careful about the word trauma because it's not all trauma. And I was reading through that and I was thinking about Gabor Mate, who says that trauma is any, the the results, the, your body's response to any event that created a need for you to act differently in the future, that created a shift in in your response. And so we have a lot of people talking about trauma, myself included, and it's something that I've studied a shit ton about, but, you know, I am don't have a PhD in it. I'm not a therapist. And so, when we're talking about polyvagal theory, are we talking about trauma? Are we not talking about trauma? What are we talking about coping mechanisms? What are we talking about? Yeah, I think we're talking about all of it.
1: So, let me start with that great. First piece you brought up of what is trauma. I think that we've had trauma um, misconceptualized for a long time. We've often looked at trauma as an event. And really, what trauma is, is your response to an event. So we think of trauma as war and combat and sexual assault and physical assault and terrible car accidents and natural disasters. Those are all very acute, usually terrifying experiences that pose real you know near and dear present harm to to our nervous system to our survival but those are sometimes called big t traumas and really it's it's about how you respond to an event it's about how your nervous system perceives an event so sometimes we also talk about the concept of little t traumas and little t traumas are like bullying emotional neglect emotional abuse having really unsafe work environments or coworkers, where where it's not like there's something that's imminently a risk to your physical survival, but it's still incredibly stressful. It's like, you know, water torture. After a period of time, it just surpasses your ability to cope. So when we talk about polyvagal theory, we're not really just talking about trauma. I think that we're more talking about stress and how the nervous system responds to stress because trauma is an incredibly stressful event. Depending on the type of trauma, it might be a very stressful event in which you experience overwhelming terror and fear, which are all products of your autonomic nervous system, and you're not sure you're going to survive. But a lot of us just have a ton of stress that we deal with day-to-day from rush hour traffic to deadlines to getting the kids you know, ready for school and out the door to cleaning the house to doing the laundry to You know, that thing, that potluck you got to go to and you don't have time to bake the
0: cupcakes, you know, that's all stressful and it's wear and tear on the nervous system. All right. I need to, I need to talk about this for a moment because there are, and people like to idealize times that passed, oh, when the simpler times, when life was easier, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And I have a little bit of a problem with that because if you know anything about history, there has not been a, a, really like peaceful easy time like there's always been something that people are going through so we're dealing with because of the advances in technology and machinery and the industrial revolution we have so much to do because we have the ability to do so much we can wash dishes and laundry at the same time while writing emails and you know feeding our kid like you couldn't do all of those things because all of those things weren't even options before so Can we talk for a moment about, like, are we, and I know we don't have evidence for this, but are we more stressed out now, or is it just different kinds of stress? That's a really good question. I think that the human fallacy
1: is that we are very focused on the immediate present day and immediate past, and we lack perspective. And this gets us into trouble a lot because, yes, sometimes we, like you said, we idolize, oh, it's so terrible these days, right? If I had just lived this time before, I remember it was so much better back then. I mean, yeah, you look through the span of human history and there's been plagues and genocide and slavery and world wars and and so, so much suffering. Suffering is just part of life. Like the absence of suffering, suffering is only, you know, something that is afforded to the dead. <laughs> if you are here, you are going to be stressed. And the flavors of stress change over time. But it's still stress. And so think about toxic stress. This is maybe how to think about it. Because not all stress is bad. Like you go to the gym and you stress your body. But that's not toxic stress. You it was stressful learning to drive. Can you remember learning to drive or to any parents out there who are teaching their children to drive correctly? Oh, okay, that might be toxic stress for you. But it's overwhelming to learn to learn to drive. To move, to buy a home, that's so stressful. But we do these things because they foster our independence and our growth and and our adaptive, you know, well-being. So toxic stress is really about those experiences that overwhelm your capacity to cope with and often, not always, have have a pretty big dose. They go on. So it's one thing if one day in your life you sat in rush hour traffic and you were stressed out in that moment and then you never experienced rush hour traffic again. Oh, how amazing. But the reality is you experience rush hour traffic every single day for some of you on your commutes depending on where you live. And it's that wear and tear. It's that that culmination of that toxic stress on your body that starts to really wreak havoc. So toxic stress when it surpasses your capacity to cope. It's about the dose and it's about the length of of exposure time. I would say. And yes, we don't have to deal with some of the things that people a hundred years ago dealt with. I mean, thank goodness you don't have to worry about some of the things that. People had to worry about 100, 200, 500 years ago, right? Like we have the luxury of I can get up and go look in my fridge for food. I don't have to go hunt it and kill it and prepare it and store it and then do it again the next day. But what we do have is I have to make dinner while doing the laundry, while telling my kid how to do their homework and folding clothes and planning for tomorrow. So it's just a different flavor of stress, in my opinion.
0: Okay, I, I think that that's important, and I like that you went into the moment of sort of some stress is actually good for you, so let's not demonize all of it because that's not really helpful. And why might, why might a situation have a different response in person A versus person B? So say we are both working in the same workplace and we have an uber micromanager as a boss and it doesn't bother Rachel, but it bothers Zoe.
1: There's a lot of factors that go into our individual responses to stress and how we unconsciously and consciously appraise stress. So some of that is genetics. Some of that is just how you're wired, your own neurodiversity and how your nervous system functions some of that is based on attachment and how you were regulated when you were a child so are or not skills <laughs> or not yeah so our coping skills start in childhood based on our caregivers whether that's your parents or grandparents or whoever took care of you or if people did not take care of you that sets the stage for your nervous system and polybagel theory talks a lot about this of how we're social creatures and because we're social creatures We're wired to connect and we have the ability to regulate each other. And so we don't come into this life with, here's your instruction manual on how to practice mindfulness and deep breathing when you get stressed. You don't have that. Somebody had to teach you that or teach you how do you go find the books or the courses that you engage and enroll in to to learn those techniques, right? And so co-regulation in childhood or lack thereof is a big factor, too. And then how healthy our nervous system is present day is a big factor. So this is where the concept of resiliency comes in. So if you have been, let's say you are planning to run a half marathon. You don't say this because I'm a runner. I hate running actually, but you're planning to run a half marathon and you're like me, you don't run. Maybe you haven't been working out. You haven't been training. You've been living on processed food and you know fast food. And you're like, the day of the race comes and you're like, I'm going to do it. It's probably not going to go very well, right? Like you have not been training. Your nervous system, your body is not ready for that physical feat. So your nervous system is part of your physical body, but yet we for, we forget that. We think mental health and physical health are separate, but mental health, we're working with your nervous system. It's a huge system of your body. And so the more health and wellness you have in your nervous system, if you're going to go do that half marathon, you're like, I've been training I've been running, I ate a really nutrition, high protein, like high energy meal. I'm all carved up. I got all the nutrients I need, I'm hydrated. My support person is there with me, cheering me on. I've been practicing mindfulness. I've been running through this and I'm gonna kick this half (laughs) marathon, right? You're gonna be much more successful than person A I just described. And so the nervous system, we can train our nervous system to be more resilient to stress. So when that boss is an asshole again, person A who doesn't do anything to really train their nervous system, right? They spend their time binge watching TV and eating high sugary meals and they don't go for walks or workout or like do any kind of mindfulness. Yeah, that's gonna be way more stressful for their nervous system that doesn't have much capacity to flexibly regulate in the light of stressors versus person B who's like, after work I go to yoga and I try and get really good sleep and I eat pretty well and I walk and I exercise and I practice mindfulness whatever that is you're going to be way more resilient to deal with those stressors not to say that you're ever going to get to be a, at a point necessarily where like life isn't stressful but you'll be able to bounce back to it more easily your nervous system won't get
0: hijacked so easily and flooded and so I think there's a lot of people that listen to fried that have um sort of had a, a come to Jesus moment with self-help because they felt like they were doing yoga and breathing and practicing mindfulness. And then they burnt out anyway. In those people, my assumption and correct me if if I'm thinking about this incorrectly, my assumption is that there are earlier things Right. So we're back to this being regulated or not being co-regulated or not co-regulated as a child. Maybe a possible genetic or epigenetic tendency, you know, maybe some other trauma that's been unprocessed, sort of hanging out in the background. And so the things that you were doing were useful. But you were already strained. And you didn't know that you were already strained because you're not thinking about any of those things. You don't have you're not holding those things in awareness all the time. So you might be doing all those things, but have a background that means that those things are less effective or don't create as much flexibility. Question mark.
1: Uh, I think I think it's
0: a bit of a mixed
1: bag because it could certainly be you're butting up against some limitations from some old wounds that need to be resolved and cope as much as you may try. Those experiences need to be reprocessed, which is a great thing to use EMDR for. Yeah, Your nervous system, I'm going to go into a little bit more explanation. I'm yeah. a concept here from polyvagal theory to, to give you another answer to this, but your autonomic nervous system, that automatic nervous system actually has three parts to it. You have what's called the ventral circuit, which sometimes I also call your window of tolerance. It's like The Goldilocks zone, like everything is just right there. It doesn't mean there's the absence of stress in your life, but like you're coping, you're dealing like I'm regulated enough. I'm okay. When we leave that window of tolerance, that ventral circuit, because stressors are so overwhelming or we perceive them to be so threatening, we may go into the sympathetic circuit, which is your mobilizing circuit. So in sympathetic, you get a rush of energy and anxiety. This is where like racing, ruminating thoughts lie, irritability, anger, sleeplessness. You know, you can't stop playing out that conversation from the past, present or future. It's like all this energy in your body. It's hard to sit still. Your digestion might get suppressed. You might lose your appetite. These are some common symptoms with sympathetic engagement. Then we also have what's called the dorsal circuit. So the dorsal circuit of the autonomic nervous system is that place of immobilization. I sometimes think of dorsal depressed to kind of keep those straight, dorsal depressed. So in that circuit, it's like somebody takes all of the energy out of you. You're just tired. You're heavy. You lose motivation. Like you, your mind is really slow and sluggish. You don't know what you think. You don't know what you feel. This is where you might really have a lot of cravings and we, we just like keep eating all the calories and i want more bread and and more sugar and more ice cream and all those things it's just it's kind of the state of like i don't give a shit like that's what that circuit is now these circuits are all adaptive they're not your enemy they have worked or
0: you wouldn't be here okay stop pause Pause. we're repeating this one sentence these circuits are all adaptive I really, I want you to, you know, write that sentence down and highlight it 47 times and put it somewhere. Again, we come back to this concept that we talk about it, Fried all the time. As Fried guides, as your coaches through burnout, we do not demonize coping mechanisms. This is why. This All of this is adaptive. You created things for a reason. Your body is reacting the way It is supposed to react. It's doing the things it's supposed to do. And then sometimes. Fried fam, I tell you in nearly every episode that step one of your burnout recovery is blood work. And I know that a lot of you avoid it because it's a pain and because your doctor has told you that everything is quote-unquote fine. And they refuse to test all the things that you think you need. What if I told you that you could test what you want, when you want, from your home with just a couple of drops of blood? CyFox Health allows you to do just that. You can buy tests as one-offs or join a membership. Either way, you can test and track your results to help you make decisions about your burnout recovery journey. Get 10% off any membership, subscription, or one-time test kit right now. Go to scifoxhealth.com forward slash fried for your discount. That's SIPHOX Health.com forward slash fried.
1: And then sometimes, so we try, we try and bring in ways to regulate those automatic responses because sometimes they get activated and it's like I don't need this necessarily. Like it's okay, loss really isn't a threat. Like I can figure this out. I'm gonna use some skills or make some adjustments, and I'm on my merry way. So if you have experienced burnout and you've been doing all these things like Kate said, like I was doing all these things and I was practicing all these skills and it, it still happens. Like, well, burnout will happen most likely to all of us multiple times in our life. It's about to like the degree to, you know, what extent and how we recover. But if we recognize that these symptoms are all adaptive and you haven't been able to like get your way out of one of those stress responses then I really beg the question, so what is your nervous system trying to tell you that you're not listening to? Is your nervous system saying, you can use all the skills in the world, but I'm still going to perceive this to be dangerous because we're not supposed to be here. It's time to move on. It's time to find a new way of living. It's time to leave that job. It's time to take that jump and you know, go into that thing you've been wanting to do. That's the other piece, I think, to listen to, and that's how we can befriend it. Like, hey, buddy, hey,
0: nervous system, what are you trying to tell me? And so this leads into a question that comes up a lot in the group, an experience that comes up a lot in people that have burnt out, that people really struggle with. So this is the scenario I'll paint it out and this is um not any one particular person I have over the past 6 months I've read this probably 40 times in the group so this comes up a lot I was given some time off I felt like I did some good healing I rested I felt restored I worked with somebody I my iron levels were low and I got them back up I took vitamin D you know I did all the things and I was feeling much better And then I went back to work. And within two weeks, it feels like it was way worse than before. I don't know how to function. I can't. Everything shut down. I thought I was better. What happened? Yeah. So a couple of
1: thoughts I have, because I don't have any one person's. Here's your answer to that. But I do think the first piece to explore is. If you took the time off, if you went through your recovery period, essentially, and you went back and it was like, it's just as bad, if not worse, then what does that mean for you? That's not necessarily about you. Clearly, it's not about you haven't done your work because you just took time off to do your work and you had support and you had people are saying you've done your work, right? So if it's not about you, then what's the larger lesson possibly? the other piece i think is sometimes when we have that recovery time and we get so anchored into our window of tolerance like we feel that rest and the reprieve and the freedom that comes it could be a real shock to the system to go back and to put your nervous system back into that setting and now you know it's kind of like you know how good that thing is over there, and then you went back to this thing over here, and you're like, "Oh, geez!" Now I'm just reminded of how shitty this thing is over here because I was over there, and it's beautiful over there. The grass is literally greener, y'all. It's literally greener, <laughs> <laughs> and it's still greener even though I'm back on this side. Yeah. So, and then sometimes it's also what's getting activated for you in this state, in this space that that is about. Like, I need some EMDR. This is activating old stuff for me. Like, my boss reminds me of my really abusive dad. Or my coworkers remind me of being bullied when I was on the cheerleading squad. You know, whatever that may be. But my first piece is always, look at what your nervous system is perhaps telling you. There's this beautiful poem by Rumi, who's one of my favorite poets. It's called The Guest House. The Guest House by Rumi. and The cliff notes of that is that Rumi says to meet all of your emotions and your feelings as if they're messengers. Invite them in, even the sorrow and the jealousy and the anger, invite them in for a cup of tea, for each one may be a messenger from beyond. Mm. And so if we really sit and get curious, why this anxiety? What do you have to tell me? Why this sadness? What do you have to tell me? That's really where we befriend our neurobiology because your nervous system is adaptive and it was designed to keep you alive. And so when you find it's still yelling at you with those symptoms and you feel anxious or overwhelmed or so sad or so burnt out or all of these pieces, what is your nervous system trying to communicate with you? Because it has your best interest in mind.
0: Your, your best interest, according to your nervous system, being like, don't die. Don't die. Don't, yeah. don't die. And I think, don't this is, die. I think this is something that's important to differentiate because your nervous system isn't necessarily trying to um, make you happy. It's trying to keep you alive. And it's telling you that the situation that you're in is dangerous for your survival, Right. It's not saying, like, you'll be happier in a different place. It's saying, Bish, this is not working for you. Like, this isn't your this is not a good system for you. And so I think one of the things that people come up against is they they feel a lot of guilt not being able to. This is and this is their words, not mine, because I do not believe this is true. Let me be very clear about that. Why can't I hack this environment? It seems like everybody else can do it. Why can't I do it? Like, I've done all the work. Why Why can't I do it?
1: Because your autonomic nervous system has evolved over 500 million years. So how are you going to hack 500 million years of neurobiology? (laughs) It is just a humbling, sobering thought, right?
0: Yeah. Yes, I think that. And it's just the fact that some situations are just not good for you and don't deserve you. And I think the question comes up a lot for people. It's like when to quit and when to grit. So when do I do, when do I say, okay, I, I rested, I healed, I went back in, it was awful. And when does that mean I have to quit? Or when does that mean I should be doing EMDR? Or does it mean both things? Or does it mean, I, I feel like a lot of people that burn out are, are such high achievers that they don't want to believe that there's a situation that they cannot somehow make tenable for themselves if they just do all the things. So when people need permission to walk away from things, I think that's that's part of what I'm trying to like get out of you. And and the other thing is a, a release of any sort of self-judgment or guilt around the fact that some situations just don't work. Yeah. What you
1: said earlier, your nervous system is just looking at it's looking at it doesn't want you to die. Right. It's trying to keep you alive. Your nervous system is trying to support you to thrive. And so you're in this situation. And, and when we see like, when do I grit versus when do I quit? What are the values at play for you? Is it about the money? Is it about the success? Is it, is it about working your way up the hierarchy of the ladder? Is it about some certainly about just stability? Sometimes we don't have a choice. We don't have the privilege to leave or to quit. And so we have to figure out how to grit. And so I think that's, Individual to each person, but the first piece would be to reflect on your values and what's important to you. And your nervous system doesn't care if you say, but this is going to get me to like a seven figure job. Your nervous system says, I don't care. This is not good for me. And so I'm going to let you know it's not good for me. And that's where I think we get stuck in this capitalistic patriarchy society of sacrificing our wellness and our well being. And the name of money and prestige and, and titles. And that's a personal thing that we, I think, each person has to struggle with and find, when do I sacrifice these values versus when do I grit it to align with the values? Knowing that the wear and tear of being in those activated states for long periods of time. So if you live in sympathetic or dorsal states for long periods of time, your physical body will suffer guaranteed like this is where we develop really chronic degenerative diseases
0: we're talking cardiovascular disease diabetes hypertension arthrosclerosis i mean we could stroke all sorts of cancer
1: yeah, yeah. all of it arthritis immuno deficiency diseases digestive issues ibs all. fibro chronic fatigue like anything that becomes chronic can be because of the stress you experience i'm not saying all chronic issues are not at all but there's a humongous overwhelming correlation to toxic stress and degenerative diseases and in a way you can think okay i'll sacrifice my values here and push myself through it but my body will make me stop
0: at some point because yeah something will go wrong everybody listening here knows that feeling right that you just you just couldn't one day right um i think you said you know what are the values and what are you kind of looking for here? And we talked, you talked about money and you talked about the prestige and status and title and all of these things. But what I find is that a lot of people have a hard time leaving because they feel guilty. Uh, And the guilt is sometimes about their partner because their partner is going to have more financial responsibility for a moment and sometimes the guilt is about because a lot of times people can't imagine that they'll ever be able to work again just because this situation doesn't work for them, which we both know is not true. Then then there's guilt sometimes around teammates because usually burnt out, burnout is contagious in companies. So a lot of times it's like already. Well, four people have already left. If I leave, then the people that are left behind me are going to have too much to handle. So a lot of people are gritting to avoid feeling guilty.
1: Yeah. Guilt is a big emotion, right? And that can put us into kind of a sympathetic mobilizing state, like guilt motivates us to do things or to grit. Guilt can also kind of bottom us out, um, can tip over into shame and and total despair. So first I think is to just get curious about the guilt. And what is my guilt saying to me? What is How is my guilt entrapping me? And And are those... What evidence do I have for the messages that my guilt is giving to me? Like a trauma bond that we develop with our coworkers because of toxic work cultures of, "I can't leave these people." This is just a job. Recognize that trauma bonds that, that if you're staying to sacrifice yourself for your coworkers, what kind of a paradigm and, and environment are you setting up? How are you contributing and enabling? that work culture. Nobody leaves because we're so trauma bonded because of our stress so the culture never changes cuz we just stay because we're in this bond and and it just keeps on the wheel keeps on turning. The guilt of oh gosh like my partner's going to have to sacrifice or going to have to pick some things up. You know, sometimes our brains also part of the autonomic nervous system process we're always looking for the negativity bias. We're looking at what could go wrong. Thank goodness our nervous systems do that because that helps keep you alive, right? You recognize that dog doesn't look so friendly over there so I'm not gonna go pet it and you avoid getting bit, right? But that negativity bias is often not accurate when it tries to forecast our future, when it tries to be a fortune teller. I actually had this exact experience for myself when I left community mental health years ago I was worried about how that leap would impact my relationship because I thought that I would have a decrease in income as I went to work for myself and I'd have to lean on my partner. So we had a lot of conversations about that. And so I think that's an important piece of working through that is talk about it. Talk about the fears. Talk about a plan so you know that you're a team, so you feel like you're a team. And I also had a lot of loyalty to the clinicians that I was supervising at the time in this toxic work culture, and I recognized I had the exact paradigm of I can't leave because all these people rely on me. And with enough reflection and meditation and just sitting with that, I recognized I don't know that these are actually true. Mm. I these, these These statements are based on feelings that I'm having, feelings of being burdened and burnt out and overwhelmed and afraid because I don't know if leaving, if I'll be successful. One of the best bits of advice anyone ever gave me when I was at this time in my life was Rebecca, sometimes you just have to jump and trust that your parachute will open. And if it doesn't happen happen, then you find your plan B. You find the other parachute, right? <laughs> and you find and and luckily my parachute, my parachute opened. And I think that it's important that we just be real about the messages we're sending ourselves and just get curious. Do you know that to be true? So true that you would bet your life on it. Or could there be another potential outcome? So often, the worst case scenario is not what actually happens.
0: And I think this idea that you staying because you feel guilty isn't actually helping anybody Mm -hmm. is an important one to hone in on again for a moment that you are sacrificing yourself for the perceived benefit of others. You've heard me say that a lot on this show. You're sacrificing yourself for the perceived benefit of other people that you might not actually be helping at all. Your leaving might give them the same freedom. You are not the all protector of all the people. Don't martyr yourself. So, You've been working on these things and talking about these things for a long time. What made the decision for the book and why the combination of polyvagal theory and EMDR? I know those are two very big questions and separate, so you can take one at a time if you
1: want. <laughs> oh, that's a. I love the question. I think I can answer them together. Yeah. Okay. So EMDR, let me back up. Okay. So no psychotherapy, we focus on the nervous system. That's what we treat in mental health, right? All symptoms and DSM diagnoses and flavors of psychological anguish are all the product of how your nervous system is functioning and sending information. So your nervous system is a very expansive system. I mean, when you think about your nervous system compared to like your reproductive system or compared to, you know, like, your eyes or, you know, your ear, nose, and throat. I mean, it's a huge system. It's It kind of governs everything. Every system interacts with your nervous system and it's at the heart of every moment of your day, right? Like you're able to listen to this podcast and eat your lunch and go to sleep and feel feelings, look at your partner and feel love or contempt, depending on the any of the night it's ready, but all of that system, you're essentially just made up of all the stuff that's happening between your neurons, right? Oh, kind of mind blowing when you think of it. So in EMDR, we focus a lot on memory, which is only one part of the nervous system. Memories are stored in your brain, right? And the brain is part of your central nervous system. That's one part of your nervous system, just one. But you don't just think your memories, you feel your memories. And you feel your memories through the other part of your nervous system called the autonomic nervous system. It's just automatic. So let's just test this out for a moment, fried fans. I invite you to think about a food that you love. Something really yummy. And as you think of that food, just notice what happens your, to your face and in your mouth and in your body. And now think about a food that you really just like. Yeah, and notice what changes. Okay, you can let all that go. That was just a quick little experiment in which you could think of those foods because you have experience eating those foods. Those are memories. And then you had an automatic response to them, right? So Kate kind of shuddered a little bit when she thought of the food she didn't like, right? I, she didn't consciously say,
0: shut now, for effect.
1: She just shut her.
0: That's I just so like, get your grapefruit out of my face.
1: Get yeah, it out of here. Mine's bananas. I just like, the uh, bananas. I don't know why. Yeah. So you just have these responses. That's your autonomic nervous system. That is the dance between your memories and your autonomic nervous system. So I started studying polyvagal theory before the pandemic. And then when we all went into lockdown and shut down, it kind of became my pandemic project where I just kind of dissociated from the insanity of 2020 by just diving into neuroscience. And I had this light bulb moment where I really recognized that, yes, an EMDR, were focused on processing memories, but that's only one half of it. The other half is what happens in your autonomic nervous system, how your body responds to those memories. Because if it wasn't for the autonomic nervous system, when I asked you to think about those foods, you would have just felt neutral. You wouldn't have had any feeling good or bad about them. And so when we think about this intimate, intertwined relationship between our memories and our feelings and sensations, We recognize that our day-to-day lives are just like this intimate dance as our nervous system experiences our environment, which may bring up memories, which leads to autonomic responses, and autonomic responses can then bring up memories, right? So let's say, for example, all of a sudden you notice your heart's beating kind of fast and there's nothing that's really making you anxious, You check your environment, you're like, I don't know why I'm feeling anxious. And then all of a sudden, you're thinking about these times that you have been really anxious and you had panic attacks. And now you're all of a sudden in the past thinking about those memories just because your heart was beating a little fast, maybe because you have too much coffee, right? So there's this dance between feeling and memory and memory and feeling. And that's where the idea for the book came, because I really feel that as psychotherapists and as EMDR therapists, if we don't talk about how our memories and our autonomic responses are intimately connected, I think we miss half the picture.
0: I have so many thoughts and questions. <laughs> um, my brain is like going click, 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 all the things, all the things, all the things. So one of the things that I was thinking of is that um, your memory creating a reaction, right? This is part of what sometimes people call a trauma response if it is in relation to A previous event and your reaction to said event. But what I'm thinking is, you know, your heart could be racing. And I use this example a lot, but I use it a lot so that it sticks in people's minds so that they remember it out in the world because I think it makes things easy. If you were bullied by a kid who wore a red backpack in elementary school, you might have been watching a Netflix show and somebody threw a red backpack over their shoulder and your nervous system went, "Ah, red backpack. Right, and so this this initial thing could be because you had too much coffee. It could also be because red backpack, and yeah, and so it's. I think it's important to understand that you're not always going to understand, because you don't even necessarily remember the red backpack, and you don't even really consciously know that you saw a red backpack. The red backpack just happened, and you just were back to this. Autonomic, automatic conversation, right? You just responded. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you're not going to be able to get to the root of an emotion and that's okay. Yes, it absolutely is. I love this
1: share and thinking of two really important concepts related to polyvagal theory and one with EMDR. So you just, very simply described what's called neuroception. Neuroception is a concept that's part of polyvagal theory. And neuroception stands for perception without awareness. So your nervous system is always perceiving and appraising your external, internal, and interpersonal in-between environments. And it's just scanning without your conscious awareness. Because if you had to stop and think all the time about safety and danger in all those environments, you wouldn't get anything done. So, neuroception is kind of like your home security system. You just turn it on and you trust it'll sound an alarm if there's something it perceives to be dangerous. And so, your nervous system right now is taking in your external environment, like the light and the sounds and the smells. And, you know, are you sitting in front of a nice window? Is a picture crooked and really annoying you? Is your desk really clean? Is it a mess? right? Like what's going on in your external environment? How does your nervous system perceive that? It also perceives how you feel in your body. Do you feel sick? Do you feel tired? Are you rested? Are you satiated? It also perceives how you're reading someone else. You know, when you just get the feeling from someone else, like, I don't know, they just give me a weird feeling and I don't know why. That's neuroception that picked up on something though you're not consciously aware. So neuroception, when it perceives something that it appraises to be dangerous, like red backpack, It will just sound the alarm. And sometimes you might recognize, oh, red backpack reminds me of that jerk from elementary school. But sometimes, like you said, you don't. You have no idea. You just notice, oh my gosh, all of a sudden I'm feeling so anxious. What's happening here? So one of the ways that we can actively engage neuroception, because remember, it's a passive pathway. It's just happening 24-7. This is one of the ways we stay alive. Our nervous system is always just scanning to make sure we're safe is when you notice you're getting this flood of energy and like, I think I'm reacting to something, scan your environments intentionally, and then you make neuroception active. So take a moment and look around your external environment, appraise your external environment, noticing what you see, what you hear, what you taste, what you smell, what you can feel. All of those pieces can help us to Get more oriented to our cues of safety, right? So cues of safety might be the lights and the pictures in your space, or maybe you're in your car driving and you feel really good in your car, like your car's your safe space. Then appraise your internal environment. What cues of safety can you notice internally? I don't have like any cramps or pains or, you know, my my lower back feels pretty open and, and you know, not too tight and and I just ate a really good lunch, so I feel satiated. And then if you're with somebody, can you praise cues of safety with them? Like this person, do they seem to be friend or foe to you? Now, when you appraise this, when you scan these environments and you perceive, oh, that picture's crooked and it's driving me nuts, like go ahead and straighten it because that's a cue to your nervous system. Or I don't know why, but that red backpack that my kid just brought in from school is really activating me. I don't know why. Who knows why? Get it out of there. Like if that's just what your nervous system is responding to. So when we can consciously appraise neuroception, we can increase that autonomic nervous system's awareness of safety. And sometimes when we remind ourselves, like, I'm safe, this is how I know I'm safe, we can kind of deactivate some of those responses. Now, the other piece is if you notice, I don't know why I'm having this response, but it seems to be about this red backpack. EMDR would say, notice all those feelings that you're having when you look at that red backpack. Get out of your head. Stop thinking about this is ridiculous. It's so silly. It's just a red backpack. Notice how it feels. And if you scan back in your life, are there are any experiences that happen to pop out that seem similar to you, that feel similar,
0: whether or not they make sense.
1: So, that's also how you could bring your DR into that.
0: I love it. Who should be reading this book? <laughs>
1: this book is really written for psychotherapists. If you are not a psychotherapist or in the healing community, I do believe that half of the book will make sense to you. The other half is really about how you practice EMDR, and so that won't be as applicable. But if you are a mental health professional, if you're a psychotherapist, if you're a psychiatrist, a nurse um, practitioner, if you work in the
0: field of mental health, this book is for you. And what is your hope for... Say a million people read this book. Let's just throw that out there into the universe. Hello, universe. A million people are going to read Rebecca's book. Say a million people read this book. What would you like to see as a result of the book being that prolific?
1: I would like to see the fields being more integrative in not only how we recognize we're treating the nervous system, and it's a very... Large system, and there's a lot at play. And so many of our counseling theories feel like mine is better than yours. And if you don't do this one, then you're not legit. Or I like it's an integrative practice, y'all. Like all of our therapies are all just trying to help people heal. And the more integrative we can be, I think the more efficient we can be as therapists. And the better we can just recognize I'm treating the nervous system. The nervous system is, in a sense, my client. I think the more attuned and um effective we can be with, you know, understanding and diagnosing and identifying appropriate interventions. My other hope, I would say, for the book, this is my last chapter of the book that I, I get on a bit of a soapbox, but it's about <laughs> being an embodied healer mm. because I One of my biggest pet peeves in the field of psychotherapy is the lack of embodiment that I see from people who talk the talk, but don't walk the walk. Uh, I preach this, but I am not my message. I don't embody my message. And I think that when we practice in that way, we're just kind of disillusioned and we're asserting ourselves to be just better than I know all these things about health and wellness but I don't actually embody them or practice them that's just kind of phony baloney
0: so well, I, think, I think I think the I think my biggest issue there is that there's um a lack of integrity mm-hmm. on a physical level you're not really feeling the the thing that you offer which means that you can't trust it as much which means that your belief in it and that affects everything. So I think this is I I feel the same way sort of I mean I've been in the healing world for a very long time and not sort of not doing your job in your own life and it doesn't mean you have to be perfect all the time and it doesn't mean but it does mean that you believe in what you're doing enough to use it so that you can trust it. So that when you're offering it to other people, it comes from an aligned, integrated, integrous place.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think it was Gandhi who said, be your message. And, and that's what I I really feel it comes down to. If, if you are in the field of health and wellness, you
0: have to be your message. Amen to that. I think that that is a beautiful way to wrap up today for everyone. That's like, I need that book now it will be out shortly and all of the links will be in the show notes for you to find with ease. Rebecca, thank you for opening this polyvagal door with me and for giving people the chance to experience, I hope experience not only on a mental level, but also on a physical level, the depth of this conversation that the, the goal of every fried episode is to have a you know moment of healing for everyone that listens. And I feel like there's plenty in here to choose from. So thank you so much for coming back and sharing your wisdom and your knowledge and your love. Thank you so much for being an embodied messenger in this field. All right, fried fam, that wraps up another episode of fried the burnout podcast. Should you love this podcast, please review and subscribe and send it to everyone you know, because as we grow, we can help more people. And that is always the goal. Until next time. Ain't gonna burn ourselves out. no more.